In this episode of 750 Milts, unlike other animal shelters across the United States, animal shelters in LA no longer needlessly euthanize animals. What's all of that about? Then, how we're now making realistic fake videos of people and what that means for society. Will we be able to tell what's real from what's fake anymore? Also, some people might not care that much for the environment, but if you tell them their bank account does, they just might have a change of heart. All that plus today's secret link, an epic featured track from the late 80s, and a few words of wisdom from Elon Musk is coming at you right now. Hey everyone, welcome to 750 Mills, the show that's all about bringing you good news, interesting stories, and genuinely useful things to know. Glad to have you hanging out with me. My name is Andre, and today, on this episode anyway, we have stories from Indonesia, the United States, and the internet. There's a lot of good stuff to talk about, good and interesting stuff. Everything from making people who care about the environment and people who care more about earning money see eye to eye, to animal shelters doing the best they can to not have to kill so many animals. This one was a bit surprising to me, to be honest. And finally, deepfakes. This is a word you should care about because it affects you and how you might perceive the world, whether you know about it or not. Let's get into it. Exactly how does caring about, and caring for, the environment benefit us? Answering questions like that affects both you and me whether we like it or not. And just to be clear here, we're not talking about the how part of the equation yet. Like uh, when people get bent all out of shape over what the best ways to take care of the environment are, or if you even should care, whether it's changing your diet and lifestyle or switching to renewables. That's the how part of things. What's also important is getting people to appreciate the value of caring for the environment without being derogatively labeled as a bunch of tree-hugging hippies. That's the why part. Back to the question, how do we benefit from caring about and caring for the environment? Let's answer that with a story from Indonesia. A 69-year-old man named Sadiman has spent 24 years planting trees that cover over 250 hectares of mostly hilly land in central Java. These hills used to be rather barren after fires were set and used to clear land for agriculture, nearly drying up its rivers and lakes. Sadiman saw this as a problem and decided to do something about it, and he was quite particular about how he would go about it too. Here's what he said, quote, I thought to myself, if I don't plant banyan trees, this area would become dry. In my experience, banyan trees and ficus trees can store a lot of water. End quote. The trees he's planted have long and wide-spreading roots that help retain groundwater and prevent erosion. So, what's the result of his handiwork? Where land in his area was previously dry and arid, Springs have now formed, and the people in and around the area have used these new sources of water to irrigate their farms and supply their homes. Plus, where farmers in the area used to only be able to harvest crops once a year, now they can do it twice or even three times a year. In other words, they have Sadiman to thank for basically allowing them to double or triple their annual income. Long story short, if you take care of nature, nature takes care of you and your bank account. Here's the thing though. 
In the beginning, people didn't care much for what Sadiman was doing. Here's what he experienced in his own words. Quote, People ridiculed me for bringing banyan tree seeds to the village because they felt uneasy as they believed there are spirits in these trees. End quote. They thought he was crazy. So let's get this straight. People carelessly and mindlessly burn down forests for agriculture and turn a once lush and verdant land into a dry and arid one, decreasing the amount of clean and fresh water available to them and making the land around them more susceptible to erosion and potentially dangerous flash floods. That's fine and normal. Nothing to see here. One guy decides to plant trees and help people have more sources of clean water for their homes and their farms so they can be healthier and earn more money. Clearly mentally ill. To be fair to the villagers, they eventually did come around and acknowledge how they benefited from Sadiman's work, and they're now rather thankful. Then, moving on to a story from the United States, a bit of good news from the second largest city in the US. Animal shelters in Los Angeles have achieved a save rate of 90.49%. This means that 90% of the animals who get sent to animal shelters live as opposed to being put down. And this is in contrast to 9 years ago back in 2012, when the save rate was only 56%. This means that LA, thanks to the efforts of the animal shelters and their communities there, have achieved what's called a no-kill status or no-kill designation. This is primarily due to an initiative called No-Kill Los Angeles that was started by the Best Friends Animal Society a non-profit animal welfare organization that does outreach nationwide with shelters, rescue groups, and members to promote pet adoption, no-kill animal rescue, and spay and neuter practices. Interesting side note, they used to be a religious group that established their own church back in the 60s, but that's kind of a deep rabbit hole to go down into right now. Maybe another time. The short version is that in the early 80s, the organization moved to Utah and established an animal rescue there, and in 1993, changed its name to what it is today and removed all reference to religious ideas from its statutes. Basically, they went from religious group then to an animal rescue organization now. Back to the story. A 90% save rate is what a shelter needs to achieve in order to be given the no-kill status or designation and animal shelters across Los Angeles have achieved this collectively, meaning that no animals are unnecessarily put down. But why stop at 90%? Why not 100%? The explanation is this, and this is according to an article from ABC7, link in the show notes. Quote, Approximately 10% of pets who enter shelters have medical or behavioral circumstances that lead to humane euthanasia rather than killing for lack of space. That's in Los Angeles. It, appear in, it appears to be higher in other states. To get a bit more of an understanding why animals in shelters might get put down, there's an article written by Allison Gray on Petful.com, which I'll also put in the show notes. But basically she says there are three main reasons. Reason number one is that some animals might have serious diseases and risk spreading it to other animals, despite a shelter's best efforts to prevent this from happening. This also carries the risk of becoming an unsustainable financial burden, so euthanasia becomes a more viable option for them. The second reason is aggression in animals that makes it difficult for them to be appropriately socialized with humans and other animals. The more aggressive an animal is, whatever the reasons may be, the more dangerous they become, and it might get to a point where they're not able to be rehomed 
or be safe to be adopted. This is also a factor that might lead to euthanization. And finally, reason number three is overpopulation. Many animal shelters are over capacity and overwhelmed. And this report is just talking about the situation in the United States, where over seven and a half million pets are taken to shelters every year. And this is based on a report from 2015, mind you. So three main reasons, serious disease, aggression, and overpopulation. Allison notes in the article that animal shelters in general would like to avoid euthanization, but reality often gets in the way. This, in fact, can take a toll on the animal shelter workers themselves who have to be involved in the process. So no, it's not something that they take lightly. With these things in mind, we can see and appreciate why the no-kill initiative that the Best Friends Animal Society is promoting is a pretty positive thing. One of their goals is to make every community across the United States a no-kill community by 2025. And here's what I think. In general, everybody needs to care enough to do their part if we would like to see ideas like this succeed. For example, you've got the option of adopting a pet from a shelter instead of buying a pet from the pet store. If enough people do that, not only can you help reduce the burden on overwhelmed animal shelters, but you can also help a dog or a cat live a better life than being stuck in a kennel or cage for, for long. Then, if you do decide to care for a pet, try to do your best to be a responsible pet owner. Read up on what it really takes to take care of pets. Understand what you need to do to keep them healthy and happy. At the very least, keep in mind that pets are not toys. They're living things that need your time, effort, and care. I say this because I've seen my share of people who just lock up dogs in small cages and keep them out the front of their homes like there's some sort of biological alarm system and nothing more. And this is not an uncommon sight where I come from. My personal opinion is that doing this is irresponsible and constitutes animal abuse. If you're not willing or able to properly care for an animal, don't get one. Any animal that's locked up in such a confined space is bound to get kennel crazy. And that's not my term. That's an actual thing that happens to animals in shelters. Think about that. That's with people doing their best to care for them with whatever limited resources they have. What more if it's people who don't care about an animal, or at least don't care about him enough, and they just lock him up in a cage for a large part of their life? We should be willing to be as responsible of a pet owner as we can be, if we want to do our bit to help out, that being the bare minimum. That's my two cents. This is probably even more important to talk about, especially with reports that animal adoption rates are going way up because of the pandemic and lockdowns all over the world. I think it's a good thing overall that more dogs, cats, maybe other animals are being given better homes. I'm also hoping that they also take good care of them the way that they should. And hopefully this trend is one that carries on even when lockdowns start easing up and being done away with at some point in the future. Hey everyone, I just want to thank you for tuning into the podcast. And to anyone new who's tuning in, just like to give a warm welcome to new listeners coming in from all parts of the world. I hope you guys stick around and maybe even tell a friend about an episode or two that you like. By the way, um, do me a favor and please don't listen to the very first episode. It's really bad. Listen to episode 11 instead. 
That's a COVID-19 special. That, that one's pretty decent. Or maybe even episode 13, where I have to admit I did a horrible job with the title of that episode, but I think it's got some really, really useful stuff in it. Or if you've been wanting easy but effective ways to start getting healthier and based on science. If you want to learn more about the podcast, you can always head on over to www.750ml.fm, which is the podcast's home on the internet, or search for the 750 Mills podcast on Telegram, the messaging app, and Minds.com. If you want to follow the podcast on social media for any updates or even just to say hello. Anyway, back to the episode. It's the year 2020, and it's the month of October. Professionally famous person Kim Kardashian posts a 2 minute and 20 second video of her father, Robert Kardashian, on Twitter, where he talks to her directly and even sings and dances to a song that they used to listen to when Kim was younger. Here's the thing, Kim's dad, Robert Kardashian, perhaps most famously known for being one of O.J. Simpson's attorneys, died in 2003. 17 years before this video came into existence. Then, it's still the year 2020, but it's now the month of December, and there's a video of Queen Elizabeth II of England, who is still very much alive, making what appears to be her customary Queen speech that takes place this time of year. And in this one, she delivers some low-key, very dry jokes about the Duke and Duchess of Sussex, Harry and Meghan, as well as referencing Prince Andrew's apparent connection with convicted sex offender Jeffrey Epstein. Here's the thing, that video and that version of the Queen's speech was never made by the Queen. She just plain didn't. But the video is real, and this version of the speech is also real. Real in that it exists. And you can watch all of it right now if you wanted to. Finally, it's the year 2021 and it's the month of February. Tom Cruise appears on video sharing social media platform TikTok where as of this episode's writing anyway, he has five videos where he plays golf, jokes about Mikhail Gorbachev, laughs, and he's just doing random Tom Cruise things in crystal clear HD vertical video format. Here's the thing, none of them are actually Tom Cruise. He doesn't own that TikTok account, and despite what you've seen with your own eyes in high definition video, he never did any of those things your brain thinks he just did. This is a parody account a very refined and technologically cutting-edge one at that. And all of these stories we've just mentioned just so happen to demonstrate how it's now possible to create uncanny, lifelike video fakery using existing technology. And this is what our main story for this episode is all about. Deepfakes. So, what exactly is a deepfake? We've already gone through three big examples of it, but what is it really? And the more serious question to ask, probably, is this. What's society going to be like, and what does it mean for you and me when we can no longer trust what we can see with our own eyes and hear with our own ears, at least if it's on screen? The term deepfake, one word, no space, is a portmanteau or a blend of the two words deep learning and fake. This is the simplest way to describe what a deepfake is. It's computer-generated media where a person in an existing real image or video is replaced with another one. Fake media or fake content isn't new, it's been around for ages. Deepfakes take that to a whole new level though, and you could say it's a whole new world of fakery compared to other ways you can make fake stuff, like say 
photoshopping things. The deep faked Tom Cruise videos on TikTok are really well done. And these were created by visual effects and AI artist Chris Ume. If you haven't seen it yet, um, I'll put links and some clips in the show notes. I personally thought it was equal parts fascinating and kind of creepy at the same time. And just watch the TikTok videos. Then check out Chris's compilation video on YouTube that gives you a big picture overview of how he made him. It's really fascinating. So we know faking lifelike video is possible. We can clearly see how making fake lifelike video is possible, in high definition even. But how does it work? What's involved in making deepfakes happen? The way deepfakes does its fakery is by using machine learning and artificial intelligence to either manipulate or generate audio or visual content in such a way that it's really convincing. And in some cases, it's impossible to tell it's not real. So that's a big picture view of all of this. Most of the time, it's used to put somebody else's face onto somebody else's body to varying degrees of realism, and it's getting scary good. What things can be deepfaked? Like the examples we started out with, videos are the most popular things you can deepfake because they have the most significant effect, but other things can be deepfaked as well, like photos and audio. In fact, you can do a little hands-on experiment with deepfakery right now if you want. So there's a website called MyHeritage, and they provide a tool called Deep Nostalgia. You can find that at uh, myheritage.com forward slash deep hyphen nostalgia. And that allows you to create your own defaked images of anyone you want by uploading a picture. Of course, they say the main purpose of this is to allow you to animate your family photos. And I can see how some people might want to use this to make some sort of animated mementos of other family members. Maybe, maybe those who passed away in particular. But there's really not much stopping you from using anybody else's photos. I gave this a shot, actually, and I took a really old photo of myself when I was about 3 or 4 years old, and I used deep nostalgia to animate it. So the results were both low-key impressive and a little bit unsettling. And this was my little kid self, just staring straight at me with, with a half-smile, head and eyes moving and all, and like, like he knows I'm looking at him. It's also a little bit funny. Because the thing added probably a bit more baby fat than I thought was fair to add around my face in the video that it made. I don't really think my head is shaped like a lemon in that way, but yeah, it's what it made it. In any case, this also tells us more about the state of deepfakes today in terms of what can be done and how well it can be done. It took just one picture for this tool to create a kind of realistic, albeit imperfect, video of me. Deepfakes can be made more real to the point of us not being able to tell if it's fake. And, in general, this is the formula for that. The more photos or videos of a person are available, the more realistic of a deepfake can be made, like the deepfakes we talked about at the beginning of this segment. This is where the machine learning aspect comes in, and this is how you train, air quotes, the artificial intelligence involved to create the stuff. Should be noted that um, the best deepfakes still require quite a bit of human input and, to my knowledge anyway, we haven't yet gotten to the point of fully automated deepfakes being indistinguishable from reality. So fully automated, not yet real enough. You might be thinking, well, that sounds like all of this can be used for a lot of nonsense. And you'd be right, it already has. Think about this. Who has the most photos, videos, and audio of themselves floating around the world on the internet right now? So if you thought of either celebrities or politicians, you'd be right. 
Can you imagine the effect of not being able to tell if the leader of a country, any politician or any person really, has actually said something good or bad, even as you're watching it happen on screen? Think of what that might mean. If one politician has a bunch of rivals or a group of people who'd like to do damage to him or her, all they have to do is create a really good deep fake, put it out on the internet, and then the lie travels halfway around the world and probably gets covered by half of all the news media outlets around the world that matter before anybody notices, if they notice at all. Or what about putting a celebrity or any famous person in compromising adult situations? One report states that 96% of all deepfakes created fall into this category. This can also obviously affect ordinary people if somebody decides to actively target anyone and ruin someone's reputation for whatever reason. It's entirely possible for someone to create a real enough deepfake of someone, let's say maybe you or me, saying something that's against the law like inciting violence or hatred of some sort or something illegal, and you or I can get arrested for it. Even if in the end we're able to prove it wasn't us and it was fake, the damage will already have been done and it will have already cost us in more ways than just one. Somebody could also make a deep fake of your voice, call up a vulnerable grandparent let's say, have them transfer money to somewhere else thinking you need help and you need money and that it's actually you and then never realize that they'd just been conned. Those are hypothetical situations. But regarding the last bit, like the audio deepfaking, here's a real one of that sort that actually happened. This one was back around March 2019, when some rather sophisticated criminals used artificial intelligence to con the chief of a UK subsidiary of a German energy firm, which resulted in his paying nearly £200,000 into a Hungarian bank account after being phoned by a fraudster who mimicked the German CEO's voice. So investigators believe that deepfaking was involved as the technology can be used to create voice skins or voice clones of people and most notably you'd probably see this happening to public figures. There are some reports that similar scams used recorded WhatsApp messages to accomplish this. I just don't know if they meant training the AI or actually just using the voice clips themselves. But anyway, it's not all bad though. Deep fakery can also be put to good use, or at the bare minimum, make certain things that used to be impossible, or at least really hard to do, easier today. Throughout this segment, we've talked about the different ways deep fakes can be used, and most of the examples that we've discussed skew in the direction of mischief at best, and really malicious at worst. The reason for that, though, is because of the human element in it. The technology itself is neither good nor evil. It just depends on how it's used. Let's make the example. You can use a hammer to help you build a house, or you could use it to murder that annoying raccoon who keeps rattling through your trash. The hammer itself is neither good nor evil, it just depends on what you use it for. So if you got a neighbor with a bunch of carpentry tools and you know they're not into carpentry, you might want to start doing some math about that. Alright, you might say, how can deepfakes be used in ways that aren't just plain bad? In the movie industry, uh, deepfakes can be used to age an actor performing in the film to either make him look older or make him look younger. Or maybe if an actor passes away before production wraps up, deepfakes could be used to carry on filming that actor's role. Of course, this could also mean the possibility of doing away with the actual actors themselves and just cloning famous people and putting them on screen, kind of like the deepfaked Tom Cruise on TikTok that we talked about earlier 
but imagine a movie-length production. I mean, obviously this is a legal minefield waiting to happen, but we know the technology exists to make this happen. Also, um, defaked voices or voice cloning could also be put to good use to help people who lost their voices due to disease. In my mind, this could be like if someone might find themselves in a Stephen Hawking situation where they'd need the assistance of a computer to be able to speak and verbalize their communication. They'd no longer sound like a machine, uh, but they just sound like their old self with the help of the right equipment and the right software. Here's a perfect real-world example of all these things put together for what we can argue is good use. Right now, if you were able and willing, you could go to St. Petersburg, Florida to the Dali Museum and the man himself, Salvador Dali, air quotes, can talk to you about his art, his paintings, and even take an actual selfie with you, which he can send you through text right there and then if you wanted it. When I was checking out a video how they did this and how people reacted to the entire experience, it's really something else. It was quite pleasant to watch and see how people were just kind of taken aback and a little bit amazed by the experience. And this makes me think about the potential for digitally immortalizing, so to speak, people like artists and musicians or anyone who's had a huge impact on society in terms of culture. I know that we've already seen holograms of dead musical artists performing alongside any of their live counterparts, or even virtual characters taking the stage alongside real musicians. Holograms aren't interactive though, and they're limited by their very nature. And virtual characters still require a live human being to fulfill most of the motions, pre-programmed or otherwise. Like the deepfake Dali, and perhaps to a large degree, um, future artificially intelligent deepfakes would potentially be performing live, interacting with the crowd, coordinating with any live bandmates and maybe stagehands, probably even joking with the crowd and getting upset at some of them if they got rowdy enough. And just like Chris Ume and deepfake Tom Cruise on TikTok, Deepfake Dali emphasizes the point that the best deepfakes require human input and intervention to be convincing, for now, anyway. I'm not sure how soon in the future perfectly realistic deepfaking that doesn't require the guiding hand of a human being in some way would be possible, but if things on both the software side and the hardware side keep progressing and keep on getting better, I think we will get there at some point. But for now, um, creating these high-quality, hyper-real deepfakes still requires input from, you know, meatbags like us. It's these current limitations that also show us how deepfakes, lower-quality ones anyway, can be detected without a good amount of intervention and guidance from people who are specifically trained and skilled in this field. There are certain imperfections that people generally can look out for in detecting deepfakes. Lip-syncing might be poorly done. That's one. Skin tones might be patchy, you might notice some flickering around the edges of where a face might have been transposed onto a head. Fine details like hair and jewelry and even teeth could seem really odd and unnatural. Then there's blinking. From a report in 2018, it was noted that most deep fakes don't blink the way normal people in legit videos do. Of course, the more time passes and more sophisticated the software involved becomes, it will get harder to see these sorts of telltale signs of deepfakery. So overall, what's the solution if you want to detect deepfakes? Well, governments, universities, and big tech corporations like Microsoft, Facebook, and Google are all cooperating now on an ongoing initiative called the Deepfake Detection Challenge, which aims to support teams around the world in developing the means and tools to detect deepfakes. 
So what we have is a problem that involves artificial intelligence to some degree, and it appears to be that the solution to that also involves artificial intelligence. Let's just hope the good guys manage to stay in step with those who want to use technology like this for malicious means. So where does this leave us? My thoughts on the whole thing is this. There will always be fakery of some sort on the internet. It is the internet after all, and that would range from crude to sophisticated. Always has been. In my opinion, it's never been more important to personally take responsibility for the things you believe in, especially when it's related to the things you consume, like news. How? If you have a first-person source, for example, like an official website, an official social media account, that should be your first stop for any official statements. Whether or not you find that trustworthy is another discussion altogether, and we'll, we'll touch on that in a little bit. Maintaining a healthy level of skepticism is another important step. If you care enough about a particular news topic, don't just believe it straight out of the gate without examining a reasonable amount of evidence, whether you agree with it or not. That last bit is an important part of this, so, so bear that in mind. In some ways, it's better to be underinformed than misinformed. Why? Well, if you're underinformed, you can always fix that by collecting more information and analyzing that information. If you're misinformed, you may have already entrenched yourself in a position that you have no idea might be wrong, and it will be a lot harder to realize you've made a mistake until you've driven off a cliff. You can look at it like this. A misinformed person is like a sleeping person. To tell a sleeping person they're asleep, you'd have to wake them up. But if you wake up a sleeping person to tell them they were asleep, what happens? They'll probably shut your ears off your head and show a healthy appetite for wanting to slap you upside the head. They couldn't care less about what you have to tell them. This sleeping person could be you, could also be me, if we let ourselves become that. So this is something that people behind fake news, even just misleading news based on half-truths and such, understand and proactively use to manipulate their intended audiences for profit. And this can also carry over to deep fakes in principle, especially when it comes to important subjects and concerns that are relevant to society at large. So whenever you can, try to corroborate a report using multiple sources if this is an issue you really care about or if you know this is something that directly affects you in an important way. Try to analyze it as critically as you can and don't just look for things you agree with. Don't just read the headline and share it right then and there. Be willing to change your mind based on the best available evidence, even if it means having to change a position you've taken that might be a little bit embarrassing. That's, that's a tough part, I know. Sounds like a lot of hard work, and it really is. With deepfakes, it gets even tougher for, for all of us if we just want to have a balanced and accurate enough understanding of what's going on in the world. But when you think about it, that time and effort you have to spend to genuinely understand something that you care about, that's really just the price of admission for not being easily manipulated and not being anyone's useful idiot. That being the case, the question becomes, is that a price we're willing to pay? Anyway, folks, it is time for this episode's featured track. And I picked something from 1987, a track called Where the Streets Have No Name by U2. The story behind the song is that The Edge, that's lead guitarist David Evans' stage name, wanted to come up with a song that would be something epic to listen to and experience in the setting of a U2 show. 
Regarding the main theme of the song, Bono was said to have been inspired by a story about Belfast, North Ireland, where you could tell a person's religion and income by the street on which they lived, which was a contrast to what he felt when visiting Ethiopia, where apparently this wasn't the case. He said, quote, The guy in the song recognizes this contrast and thinks about a world where there aren't such divisions, a place where the streets have no name. To me, that's the way a great rock and roll concert should be a place where everyone comes together." End quote. The whole story behind how the song came to be and what it eventually came to mean for the band and the band's fans is interesting in its own right, including that bit where producer Brian Eno almost erased all of the existing demos of the song before being physically restrained by an engineer. By the way, if you listen to a lot of ambient music, you probably know who Brian Eno is. Anyway, if you're following the featured tracks playlist on Spotify or Apple Music, just give it a refresh. It should appear in the update. If you haven't, head on over to the show notes page for episode 20 for links to the song on those platforms. And while you're there, you should check out the video of their live performance of Where the Streets Have No Name, right before the police shut them down. It's an interesting little snippet of music history from 1987 right there. That's it for this episode of 750 Mills. Make sure you head on over to 750ml.fm to check out links to the stuff we've talked about here. Of course, including the featured track, along with this episode's secret link that'll have you buzzing while you're looking at it. You can subscribe and listen to the 750 Most episode on Podomatic.com, Spotify, Deezer, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever podcasts might be found. Just type in 750 Most Podcast in the search box and tap on the follow button. Links to all of that will be in the show notes for this episode as well, and you can find it on the official website. Hey, if you've been enjoying it so far, please consider leaving a star rating and review. So this type of feedback helps improve the podcast, and it can also help other people find it as well. And of course, I would appreciate it. Anyway, folks, thank you for hanging out with me, and I'll leave you with a few thoughts from Elon Musk, we're staying on theme here, on how to decide what things to believe. Here's what he said. You want to believe things proportionately to the evidence, not inversely proportional to the evidence. Hope you have a good day. Take care.